Sounding like mumbling, like she was out of her mind. She said, Boy, this kind of praise would save my life. You ought to try it tonight. Now I know she was right. She was talking to Jesus. She was talking to Jesus. She'd been talking to Jesus for all of her life. Mama used to drag me to church Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights. Khaki pants and a polo shirt. Boy, I put up a fight. She said, son, one day you'll thank me having God in your life and yeah I know she was right yeah my mama was right cause now I'm talking to Jesus she got me talking to Jesus she got me talking to Jesus yeah my mama was right cause now I'm talking to Jesus yeah, I love talking to Jesus, and I'll be talking to Jesus for the rest of my life. What a friend we have in Jesus, what a friend we have in Jesus, don't you know? What a friend we have in Jesus, oh, what a friend we got three of my own now, trying to raise them up right. My oldest is 15, and I remember what that was like, trying to deal with the trauma, trying to figure out the questions in life, and I've been looking for a way to show him how to make it all then he walks in my room while I was saying my prayers the other night. He said, I'll come back later. I can tell you got a lot on your mind. I said, it's not an interruption. 
a better time Cause I was just talking to Jesus Come over and give it a try We started talking to Jesus It's not a religion, cause it's more like a friendship, just talk to your father, like you are his kid, just start talking to Jesus, just start talking to Jesus, cause you can talk to Jesus, oh whenever you just start talking to Jesus. Just start talking to Jesus. Just keep talking to Jesus for the rest of your
Who breaks the power of sin and darkness? Whose love is mighty and so much stronger? The King of glory, the King above all kings. Who shakes the whole earth with holy thunder? Who leaves us breathless? In awe and wonder, the King of glory, the King above all kings. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love that you would take my place, that you would bear my cross. You laid down your life that I would be set free. Oh, Jesus, I sing for all that you've done for me. our chaos back into order who makes an orphan a son and daughter the king of glory the king of glory who rules the nations with truth and justice shines like the sun in all of its brilliance the king of glory the king of 
change Sunday, as happy as that can be, I guess, right? It's so good to see you all. I'm really proud of you. You both pushed through the time change and the sub-freezing weather or whatever. The tw I think it was supposed to be 29 this morning. Really, really proud of you guys. Thank you for coming. R it is a joy to be able to worship together. If you're new here, my name's Jay. Uh, I'm one of the pastors. And uh, we begin each of our services with a, what we call a call to worship a reading from God's word to, to kind of prompt and set our time together. Would you stand with us? And we're going to begin hearing from Psalm 145. This is Psalm 145, verses 5 through 12. Uh, they'll be up on the screen. I'll, I will uh, read them aloud. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy 
is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Let's pray together. Oh God, would you help us this morning to meditate on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works. God, we gather together to declare your greatness as we sing these songs, as we confess our sin and receive assurance of your mercy toward us, as we take communion and as we sit underneath the authority of your word. God, would you open our hearts to see you for who you are, that you are great and greatly to be praised. Holy Spirit, we need you this morning. May we not walk into this room to simply practice a ritual. Rituals do not save. Ritual, rituals are often, God, hollow and lifeless. God, would you breathe life into this service and into our hearts and minds as we gather today. We pray all this in the name of Christ, the one who saves. Amen. Let's sing together. Creatures of our God and King, all creatures of our God and King, lift up your voice and with us sing, oh praise Him, Alleluia, thou burning sun with golden
Sing holy, holy, holy together. second verse. Shine. 
Verse 3 of that, that song says, Holy, 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 though the darkness hide thee, though the eye of sinful men thy glory may not see. So often in our lives we can have sin that clouds our vision of who God is. And so we practice something as Christians called confession. We both do that individually, we do it corporately, but it's not so that we earn salvation, it's not uh, that we're gaining God's favor. We've already received that in Christ. We've already received salvation in Christ. But one thing that confession does is it helps us to see the glory of God in the gospel when so often our sin clouds that vision. So this morning we're going to spend some time doing that together. And uh, I'm going to lead us in just a time of quiet confession uh, individually, but then I want us to read a, a prayer together uh, it's a confession taken from um, uh, Journey to the Cross. If you saw a couple weeks back, um, Chipper uh, sent out on Realm a list of resources for Lent, and this is just one of those resources. It's a devotional, and so I pulled one of the confessions from that, and that we'll read together. But would you take a few moments, go before the Lord individually, confess your sins to God, confess your brokenness to Him, and then we will read together and receive uh, once again, uh, words of assurance from God's word. But let's spend some time praying. Would you read this prayer with me? Let's read together. 
Father of mercies, we confess that we have sinned against you. By your Holy Spirit, come and work repentance into our hearts. Help us to see you as you are, with outstretched arms, a loving heart, and power to save. Help us to see Jesus, the friend of sinners, and to follow him more faithfully as we have received him. So strengthen us to walk in him, depend on him, commune with him, and be conformed to him. Give us an experience of your grace that makes us bold, that we might joyfully live for the good of others. Amen. Hear these words of assurance of pardon for your sins. This is from Romans 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. We're going to keep singing. We're going to sing one more song together before we continue in our service. Let's sing stronger.
Thanks, Jay, for leading worship. Um, welcome to City Church. If this is your first time here, um, we're, we aspire to be a community walking with God in our city. Um, if this is your first time, if you could fill out the connection card you found in your bulletin, um, and you can write in prayers or with your first, second, third time here. Um, we have a couple announcements. And so our adult education classes are still going on this week. And so we have a class called Physical Education Mondays at 7. Um, and we're looking at the significance of God's presence in ours. So what does it mean to walk with God um, daily? And then we also have a class called Questioning Christianity, and that's Wednesdays um, at 6.30 here. And so that's a class for people who either are questioning the faith, not Christians, want to know more. Um, so if either you're a person who's wanting to know more and you are a Christian, um, it's a great opportunity to do that and also to bring a friend who maybe doesn't know the Lord um, and invite them into that space. Uh, we've had our City Roots uh, project going on, and so um, we're working towards our goal. And if you look there, we're almost at our um, total goal need. The only thing is we need our pledges to come in. So we have some final pledges that need to come in. So if you've committed to pledging, um, go ahead and do that by tomorrow. Um, that way, everything is set before we close on the final building. Um, also, there's resources in the back. So if you want a prayer guide um, or anything else going on, want to know more about what's going on if you're new here, um, you could do that, um, and then sign up for a home visit with a team member to talk about what City Roots is um, and what that's doing within our church. Other opportunities coming up, uh, we have a membership class coming up on uh, March 20th, and that's going to be 1 to 5 in the community room. Um, if you are going, you don't, you're not committing to be a member, this is just to know more. So if you've been a part of our church and want to know what it's like to be a member, get more information, it's a great opportunity to do that. Um, it's the next step towards uh, the church. And then our street outreach opportunity is next Sunday, um, the, um, the 20th at 1 p.m. If you haven't done this before, you can come at 12.30 and receive a training from our team. And we can walk, walk through what that looks like. And then April 3rd, after the second service at 12.30, there's going to be a volunteer interest meeting for the Ebby and Esther retreat in August. Um, so if that's something that sounded interesting, if you have more questions about it, come and talk to me. But it's a great opportunity to be inviting our ministry partners into our church for the conference that they're holding. And so we need a lot of volunteers. Um, so I'd love to have you there. Um, and then there's a child's education on March 27th during the worship. So if you haven't signed up for that but want to do that, go ahead and um, email our staff. And then ladies save the date. There's a women's mixer at the Szymanski's April 8th, 630 to 8.30. Um, next up, we have our gospel and life segment. So we've been doing this at City Church once a month now, and it's a way for our church to get to know our body better. Um, also, we believe at City Church that um, when we believe the gospel, it changes us, not just once we believe it, but also as we continue to walk with God. Um, so we're going to invite up Ashley Kessling um, for the segment today. 
I in the right spot, Jay? That's good. Okay. Um, I'm Ashley, if I haven't met you. And when Tyler first asked me to share, my first thought was no, but that was just because I don't like speaking in front of people. And I realized that God has given me a story. He's done so much in my life that deserves to be praised and shared. And so not liking to speak in front of people wasn't a good enough reason not to. Um, God has worked again and again in my life as I've experienced suffering, and he's shown me his love, his goodness, his care for me, and given me hope that's truly an anchor for my soul. I didn't grow up in a family that taught me about God or brought me to church. My view of God was that he existed and created everything, but that's where it stopped. I didn't know he was personal or that we could have an intimate relationship with him. He was just a distant creator in my mind. When I was eight, I lost my mom to brain cancer, and at that time, I didn't know God. But God used the loss of my mom to bring me to himself. My dad worked a lot, and we had nannies to help take care of us. They were essentially my primary caregivers. But in middle school, my dad found out that they had been stealing money from him for years, and so he fired them, and I lost my caregivers again. In the wake of that, my aunt, who was a Christian, came to live with us and help take care of us. She told me that I could know God like I knew a friend. She told me that if I read the Bible, it would change my life. She told me that those who have faith in Christ receive the Holy Spirit, who would be my comforter, who would help me know and understand scripture, who would be with me and never leave me. And all of those things sounded really mysterious and sort of intriguing. Um, and I didn't want to just call myself a Christian without knowing what it meant. And so I decided to read the Bible. In eighth grade, God saved me as I read his word. I remember placing my faith in him alone in my room with my Bible. I was attracted to the God I read about who is a good father, who takes care of his children, and who saves them from their sin. I read about Jesus, fully God and fully man, who is without sin, yet willingly bore all the sin of his people on the cross, dying in their place, and rising again to bestow the gift of life and righteousness upon us. I wanted a relationship with that God, even though I didn't have it all figured out. I realized that God used the hardest thing in my life to bring me to the best thing in my life, which was himself. In the years to come, God being my father became even more real to me as I navigated life without mom and with a very distant and busy dad. In all the disappointment and loss I felt with my family, God filled every void in my life with his love for me, and he taught me to cling to and rejoice in the eternal hope that he promises. He was teaching me that if I lost everything but I still had him, I would have the best thing. I had no idea how much more real that lesson would become after I graduated college and got engaged to Chris. Because of my decision to work for a college ministry instead of choosing a more high-paying job and also choosing to marry a man with that same job um, and same paycheck and not a lot of security in worldly terms, my dad decided to completely disown me. He went as far as taking me out of his will, and he hasn't spoken to me in over four years. Functionally, I was now officially an orphan, and this was and still is the most bizarre and painful thing I've ever experienced. I did doubt God's goodness and seeming lack of answered prayers in that season. I felt abandoned by him. But the gospel continually brought me comfort and hope. I could remember that Christ himself experienced his father turning his face away and was separated from his father while he was on the cross, experiencing not just physical pain, but severe emotional distress. I could remember that Christ willingly suffered the loss of relationship with his father on account of my sin in order that I could be adopted by God and have an eternal relationship with my Father in heaven who will never turn his face away from me. I can remember that even though I have no earthly inheritance, I have an inheritance promised to me in scripture that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. God not only comforted me with his word and his spirit, but with his body, his church, 
He has placed hundreds of people in our lives who care for us and love us like family. And I have felt God's provision a hundredfold as he cares for me physically and emotionally through his people, my true spiritual family, even if I don't have a biological family. My last example of God's goodness I will highlight. Chris and I just gave birth to our first child. Lily is eight weeks old today. We found out right after she was born that she has Down syndrome. Immediately, Chris and I felt a wave of unknowns and fears, and we realized that we had to release any expectations we may have had for our daughter. We named her Lily from the passage in Matthew 6 about not being anxious about your life and seeking first God's kingdom and his righteousness, because if God takes care of the birds and the lilies, he'll surely take care of his children. And once again, we have felt the care and provision of God through the body of Christ and specifically through City Church. God has allowed us to truly surrender our daughter to him and not be worried or afraid because he's shown us again and again that he will provide for us and take care of us. And he's been reminding me to keep an eternal perspective, that he is the God who will work every ounce of our pain and suffering for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. He is the God who is sufficient to satisfy my soul and be praised even through intense suffering. If I lost everything but I had God, I would have what I need. And I look forward to the day when, because of Christ's sacrifice in my place, I am able to stand before God face to face, spotless, fully loved, fully restored, and rejoice that nothing I suffered on earth was in vain. I am still learning to fully live like an adopted child of my Father in heaven, but I can stand here before you and testify that God is real and he's good and he's satisfying and he's worth trusting your life to him. And if I could commend you to do anything, it would be to read the Bible because that book is full of treasure. Any hope, any peace, any comfort, any provision and joy I have is directly because the gospel gives me God through Jesus. And above all those blessings, having Jesus and being loved and cared for by the God of the universe is the best and most hope-producing gift now and forever. Thank you for listening, and if anybody wants to talk more, I will be around after the service. Thank you, Ashley. Um, <clears throat> I knew it. It's like we should probably just close in prayer after she gives her testimony and pee on our way. Um, powerful, really encouraging. Hopefully that ministered to all of you in profound ways. And I trust that our scripture passage will minister to you as well. We are in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 6. This morning, verse 14 through chapter 7. Verse 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 through chapter 7, verse 1. The passage will be up here on the screen. If you have a Bible, we would encourage you to pull that out and follow along with us. Our blue Bibles sitting in the seat pockets in front of you, the baskets in front of you, you can pull those out as well. And those are yours to keep if you need a Bible. So we will read this passage and then pray <coughs> for Ashley and for Chris and for Lily, then we'll be on our way. If you are <clears throat> physically able to stand, please stand for the reading of God's word. Second Corinthians chapter 6 starting in verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? 
What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Let's pray, to, let's pray together. Father, thank you first and foremost. Um, before we get into this scripture passage in more detail for Chris and Ashley, Lily and their presence here in the life of our church, Lord, I do ask on their behalf, especially in light of what Ashley was just sharing, that their spiritual adoption would be such a lively promise in their lives, would encourage them in personal ways and and help them direct their gazes towards the new city that is to come where suffering will be completely gone and there will be no more mourning. And Lord, I pray for people here who are suffering and experiencing significant loss, that this testimony would be, would be encouraging to them, would be spiritually nourishing, and that they might even be able to have a, a dialogue with Chris and Ashley and, and learn from them and journey with them. And may our entire congregation care sacrificially for the three of them this week and the weeks and months to come. Thank you for this passage. Lord, we ask that your spirit would move in great power, as we make our way through it, that we might be a changed people when we leave here. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Many of you will be familiar with the phrase, burying the lead, burying the lead. It's a phrase that's born out of journalism. It's taken on a colloquial life of its own. For example, when a certain person under the age of four comes to me and says something like, I went potty. She is bearing the lead. The lead being that I went potty in my pants. That's the lead. That's the headline. Or more properly, you might be reading a newspaper article about a fire that broke out and someone's self-storage unit, only to find out at the very end of the little article that you're reading that among the things that were destroyed were an original Van Gogh painting. That's the lead, right? The the headline of the article shouldn't have been self-storage unit burns. The headline should have been uh, Van Gogh painting destroyed. Or in our our clickbaity age, you won't believe your eyes when you see which priceless work of art was tragically burned in a self-storage unit fire. The headline should have been something like that. Well, folks, this passage that we are looking at this morning has been the scene of much lead-bearing, mainly because the spicy line in this passage is becoming increasingly spicy in our age. So if you're a a teacher or a preacher and you want to give a spicy take, if you want to tweet a tweet, this passage is a winner. It's convicting, it's countercultural, it can be quite costly. 
But as we'll see in just a moment, the, the spicy line isn't really believed. In fact, the spicy line here doesn't really make sense unless we understand and truly appreciate the lead. Unless we understand that this passage is reminding us of something absolutely magnificent and winning us to something in line with that magnificence. Two exhortations this morning to those of us who are, as this passage tells us, the temple of the living God. Two exhortations this morning to those of us who are the temple of the living God, which collectively refers to all who have put their hope in Jesus and become part of God's new covenant kingdom family. Number one, keep outside things outside. Then number two, keep inside things inside. We'll start with that first exhortation. Keep outside things outside. Look again at verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. That's the spicy line. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? If you grew up in the church, you knew that Christian parents, you know that Christian parents were particularly stressed about dating. You know, when their kids would date, who they would date, what counted technically as a date, and so on and so forth. And the preference, to be honest, was, you know, maybe just don't date at all. Right? Thank you. If, if God wills it, he'll bring you a spouse just like storks bring us babies. Or, alternatively, you know, look what Paul says here in verse 14. If you must date, it needs to be a kid in the youth group who takes notes during the sermon. If you didn't grow up in the church, perhaps you are a newer Christian or you wouldn't say that you're a Christian. Verse 14 might sound awfully um, off-putting. Like someone with a, a monocle and a top hat saying, you know, whatever you do, don't be associated with those people, you know, those, those unbelievers. Here's what's really going on with this verse. Even though the Apostle Paul wrote 2 Corinthians, as a letter to the Corinthian church, to Corinthian Christians, clearly there were non-Christians or, or unbelievers in their midst, uh, among them. And of course, this is true in pretty much every ministry context, no matter how boldly and, and faithfully you proclaim Jesus. Some people put their hope in Christ, and other people do not. And Jesus himself even predicted that during his own ministry. But this is an acutely painful set of circumstances for Paul. Corinth was very near to his heart as seen in the amount of time he initially spent there, the check-in visits, and the various letters he wrote them, probably at least four of them. And there's a very decent chance that some of these unbelievers that Paul is talking about may have originally indicated a positive response to Paul's ministry and message before either being led astray by the opponents that Paul alludes to in this letter, or being sucked in once again by the allure of various 
idolatrous practices which were rampant in Corinth. And you can read about these in particular in 1 Corinthians. On top of that, Corinth was a, a lively metropolitan center in which Christians were rubbing elbows with unbelievers all the time in the rhythms of everyday life. And this raised some important pastoral concerns that the Apostle Paul wanted to address. So right away, we can completely dispel the notion that Paul viewed unbelievers in Corinth as, you know, those people. That he looked down his nose at them. He cared about them very much, and his pastoral heart yearned for the repentance and belief. And certainly Paul was not encouraging Corinthian Christians to entirely disassociate themselves from unbelievers, something that would have been fundamentally impossible short of setting up some separatist communes and, and those babies start to get weird in a hurry. We can also dispel the notion that this verse, that verse 14, is mainly about marriage. That's certainly a relevant consideration, but verse 14 goes well beyond that. Conceptually. Unequally yoked is an agricultural allusion, probably referring us back to the Mosaic Law, to the prohibition against putting two different kinds of animals into the same yoke. And we're not saying that these different kinds of animals can't be in the same area, in the same field. We're not saying that they, they can never say hello to each other. We're saying that these different kinds of animals shouldn't be intimately connected, such as in a yoke. Why? Because different kinds of animals will have different ideas in the yoke and then pull in different directions, and there's going to be a winner, and there's going to be a loser. Analogously, believers and unbelievers are essentially different kinds of people, the believers being new creations, who are part of God's new creation order. You can see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, while the unbelievers are not. And this is by no means a matter of human dignity or, or fundamental human value. Unbelievers and believers remain image bearers of the Almighty God. This is a matter of believers and unbelievers having different values and different priorities and understandings of how the world works. So when we yoke these different kinds of people, they will pull in different directions, and someone ends up getting dragged. Someone's values and priorities, which originally had nothing in common with the values and priorities of their yoke mates, get dragged into conformity. The Princeton professor and theologian Charles Hodge put it like this. He said, incongruous elements cannot be united and any attempt to combine them must destroy the character of one or the other. And you know who gets dragged? Usually the believer. Usually the believer. Thus Paul's urgent warning. 
He's trying to protect the believers who are under his care, which is a critically important part of being a shepherd. And of course, if, if it was the other way around, Paul wouldn't need to bother with the warning. Why does the believer often end up getting dragged? Is it because we have you know, weak intellectual arguments that get exposed when we're unsheltered? A lot of people suggest this, especially in academic contexts. But that's not it. And accordingly, that is not Paul's concern in this text. Believers get dragged because no believer is naturally a believer. No believer is naturally a believer. Instead of naturally gravitating toward God, we all naturally gravitate toward idolatry, that is, worshiping people or things in God's place. Man's nature, to quote very famously John Calvin, is a perpetual factory of idols. That's our default mode. This is a universal human condition, which is why all believers desperately need the Holy Spirit's indwelling presence to help then live faithfully as God's people. So when believers are, are yoked, when they're intimately connected with unbelievers and their practices, they'll naturally be inclined to cherish the idols that the unbelievers cherish, and the unbelievers will not be naturally inclined to cherish the God that the believers cherish. And in so doing, when the believers get dragged, we end up bringing, you can see this in verse 16, idols into the holy temple of the living God. And that, that ratchets up the awfulness, doesn't it? When believers get dragged into conformity with idolatry, they end up bringing idols into the holy temple of the living God. And now we, we see that all of this isn't just about me. It's not, it's not just about you. It's, it's fundamentally about God and his holiness and his glory. I realize this, this business of, um, about believers, that is, those who have put their hope in Jesus, I realize that this business about us corporately being God's temple might be unfamiliar to some of you and perhaps a bit abstract to the rest of you. So thankfully, verses 16 through 18 helps us sort this out. And what we find in these verses is that the promises of God to the Israelites in the Old Testament concerning his presence among them, those promises now apply to all believers who are part of the new covenant community inaugurated by the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. And not only do these promises about God's presence apply, they apply more personally and powerfully than ever before. The word that Paul uses in verse 16 for temple formally refers to the most holy place that was literally located within the Jerusalem temple where God's presence dwelled above the ark. But now we, that is believers, are figuratively, the most holy place, 
because God dwells in us and among us by the Holy Spirit, no more need for a physical temple to house God's presence. And what I am here to tell you primarily this morning is that we could not possibly ask for better news. Just like Ashley was talking about a few moments ago, far from being aloof and impersonal, the living God of the universe dwells in us and among us, strengthening us and encouraging us and warning us and guiding us and interceding for us. All of those things. I mean, the benefits of being God's people are vast, but this is surely the preeminent benefit for the people of God. Is God being with us in such a way that we are his, his temple? I mean, this, this, this is like the yacht, and, and every other benefit is like is 10% off at Perkins or something. This, this is the, the grand benefit. Or as we hinted earlier, this is, this is the lead, folks. Let's not bury it. This, this is the headline. But the presence of God only dwells in holy, set-apart places. Thus, the litany of regulations that God gave the Israelites to order their worship in the tabernacle and then the temple. And since now we are the temple, it means that we zealously keep ourselves from idols. It means we, verse 17, which which comes from originally Isaiah chapter 52, it means that we go out from the presence of idols, that we separate ourselves from them, being careful not even to touch them. Or to say this another way, outside things belong outside. And this is the zeal that, that Paul talks about in one of his earlier letters to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Disassociate yourself so profoundly that you're not even touching these idols. Or to put it one more way, pick one, God or your idols. You cannot serve two masters. And now we understand that this, this exhortation not to be yoked with unbelievers fits within this zeal to keep unholy things, namely idols, where they belong. Outside the temple walls, outside of our lives, outside of our communities. And we keep our idols outside less we interfere with God's presence in our lives or are crowded out entirely, lest the affections of our hearts get dragged into an adulterous affair with good things that we've turned into ultimate things. Unless there's a pressing concern that we might become literally yoked with unbelievers, we have some work to do in discerning the nature of this figurative yoking. And if you are concerned that you might end up pulling a cart or plowing a field with an unbeliever, find me, find me after the service. We need to talk about that. 
we've already determined that, that Paul, when he talks about yoking here, he, he's not advocating for total disassociation from unbelievers. That's not even how Paul himself lived as he did his ministry. doesn't make sense within the context of his letter. So what is Paul talking about? At the front of his mind was probably this. Corinthians, the idolatrous practices that are commonplace in your city. Pagan festivals, eating meals associated with idol sacrifices, etc. These practices are not neutral, even if they seem harmless. If you engage with these practices with unbelievers, you'll get dragged. You'll get dragged into idolatry that promises a lot but doesn't deliver. You will get dragged away from, as we will see in a moment, the true Father who welcomes you and loves you. So practically speaking, it doesn't really make sense for believers then or, or now to be you know, besties with unbelievers because we'll be zealously avoiding idolatrous practices and they'll almost certainly be avoiding the kinds of practices that characterize our worship of God. And it really doesn't make sense for believers to marry unbelievers for the same reasons, not to mention the fact that Paul explicitly exhorts Christians in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 to marry in the Lord. You cannot build strong friendships and strong marriages around this kind of dissonance, around circumstances in which we're facing very different goals and missions and embracing very different priorities and practices, not unless something gives. And Paul is saying something will give. Somebody will get dragged. Now here's a kind of question we should be asking in the context of, of business partnerships, friendships, romance, really any relationship to determine if we might be at risk of yoking ourselves, so to speak, with unbelievers. Here's the kind of question we should be asking. It goes with something like this. Is the nature of this relationship going to establish convenient on-ramps for me to indulge my naturally idolatrous heart or even encourage that indulgence? Does the nature of this relationship make it more likely that, that leisure or, or pleasure or vocational success or whatever will begin to rule in my heart instead of God? If you are hoping for me to provide this extended list of appropriate and inappropriate relationships, I am surely disappointing you right now. You need to do that difficult work yourself. But let me say this. Bring other Christians, other followers of Jesus into your discernment process. Seek godly wisdom from fellow believers. I'll mention one more thing. If you are a believer who is already married to an unbeliever, the biblical exhortation is actually to stay in that marriage, and there really is hope for you and your family. All is not lost. I don't have time to get into a lot of detail about that right now, but I would encourage you to check out 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Well, if you are familiar with the basic psychology of behavioral change and 
and moving on from bad habits, you know that replacement is key. It's not just about shedding or avoiding the problematic stuff. It's about doing beneficial stuff in the place of the other stuff. So you don't just turn your phone off. You know, you start playing piano instead. And that brings us to our second exhortation. Keep inside things. Inside. Notice that the three stayaways or, or don'ts in verse 17 are followed by three wonderfully encouraging promises in verses 17 and 18, which are a mashup of promises that God originally presented to Israel in Ezekiel chapter 20, in 2 Samuel chapter 17, and in Isaiah chapter 43. Look at these promises. I will welcome you. I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So we are, as you can see, separating ourselves from idolatry so that we can enjoy the welcome of God. So we can enjoy our inclusion in God's kingdom family as his sons and daughters. Again, this is the lead. This is the headline. We're God's temple, and therefore God dwells among us and in us, and now we see that we become part of his family. And if you're wondering why Paul is harping on this all of a sudden in the, in the middle of this letter, well, these are, are the benefits of our reconciliation with God, which Paul just unpacked in glorious detail back in chapter 5. He is showing Corinthian believers what they now have in Christ, because they've been buried and raised with Christ, are now hidden with Christ in God. That's why he's getting into all of this. This is what you have because of your reconciliation. Keep away from idols, lest the idols suffocate this. And by the way, when we are, this is really important, when we are encouraging one another in the Lord, especially hurting people, especially people who are struggling spiritually or physically or emotionally. This is where we start. We start with these three promises, with this welcome of God. Before we get to the fix-its and the what-to-dos, let's remind each other of these promises that we belong to God, that he's our father, and that we are his beloved adopted children. This, this is the foundation. And we're actually wired, believe it or not, for these kinds of reminders. Look no further than the instincts of a child who skins his knee at a sports practice. You know, if, if your kid gets hurt, he doesn't pop up from the base paths and say, you know, is, it, is there a, a medical doctor in the area that can treat this? His instinct is to go immediately to his parents so he can experience their love. This is how we're wired. So when we're hurting, when we're struggling, we point each other to the welcoming love of God. Church, these promises are the lead. 
And in light of them, here's what we do. What do we do? Chapter 7, verse 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. In many ways, this verse actually restates what we already talked about in verse 14 and then again in verse 17, since not being unequally yoked is essentially a means of, of cleansing ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, of, of separating ourselves from idolatry and the, the ritualistic language, you know, cleansing ourselves from every defilement. That language makes a lot of sense, since we've just seen that believers are God's temple. But verse 1 takes a suddenly positive turn at the end. When we come to this business of bringing holiness to completion and the fear of God. So check it out. We're putting off idolatry so that we can live holy lives in keeping with our status as new covenant people, the temple of God. Lives marked by moral obedience, no doubt about that. There is emphasis on this in the text and elsewhere in Scripture. But also, and I would say most importantly, lives in which we are worshipfully enjoying God for who He is and what He's done, which in turn fuels our moral obedience. When we are reverently in awe of God's holiness, when we are living in the fear of God, then we want to be holy. And we're rightfully concerned about being unholy. Here's one more way of looking at this, which gets at why I'm talking about this as keeping inside things inside, why I'm using that language. Church, we are putting away our idols so that Christ might dwell in our hearts through faith. Only one entity can dwell in your heart. It's either going to be your idols or it's going to be Christ. So we're putting away our idols so that Christ might dwell in our hearts through faith, that we might, as Ephesians 3 talks about, really know his love, not just know about it, that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. God's temples are made for God's presence and for knowing him and worshiping him. And then, when we know him and worship him, and then we will live the holy moral lives that God requires of us. Kind of living that's simultaneously empowered by the Holy Spirit, otherwise we'd have no chance out there, but also involves energy and effort from us as well. Here's, I don't tweet tweets. I've said this many times. I say it too often. But if I was, I might be tweeting this this morning. The horror of idolatry is not so much that it capsizes moral living. The horror of idolatry is that it squeezes out the God who is meant to live in us and to dwell among us. The one who is ultimately the fountain for our moral living. That's why idolatry is such a bummer. 
is that it squeezes out the Lord. When we're pursuing idolatry, it captures our hearts and Christ no longer dwells in them. And again, as Paul makes very clear in the cadences you see in verses 14 through 16, it's either Jesus or the idols. Pick one. It's either righteousness or lawlessness. It's either light or darkness. It's either Christ or, or Belial, which is basically a fancy way of saying Satan. You cannot take a middle position because these things don't have anything in common. There's no overlap. Church, I hope by now you've observed something. But this passage is really not about, you know, those, those other people and staying away from them. We're all sinners anyway. How dare we stand up here and say, oh, those people. Sinfulness is a universal human condition. The only thing that separates believers from unbelievers is our union with Christ, which is possible sheerly by the grace of God. So this isn't really about them and staying away from them. It's about us. It's about tending our hearts that we might be the holy temple of God and actually enjoy his Holy Spirit-mediated presence. That's what this is about. Which means it's really about God and his holiness which we reverently fear and long to enjoy. And do you see Paul's heart now in writing this passage? I, I wouldn't be surprised if he was shedding a tear or two here and there as he would write something like this. Because he so desperately and jealously wanted the people under his care to stay away from idols, lest they suffocate their enjoyment of the knowledge of the holy God. And that's why I get up here and, and Ryan gets up here and we you know, wave our arms around and all of that business so that you might really know and enjoy the living God as opposed to enjoying idols, which at the end of the day are totally dead. And that's why Paul even refers to God as a living God because he's saying, as opposed to the idols you're pursuing, which are dead as a doornail. And here's, check this out. I didn't write this, by the way. This is God speaking. This is, really, this is why it's so good. Here's how the story ends for those who are in Christ, whose holy lives indicate that they've indeed been transformed by a holy God. Here's how, the, this, this is amazing. This is the second to last chapter in the Bible. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 3. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for a husband. Check this. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And so we press on as the people of God, 
often suffering much, but understanding that even now God is present with us in more personal ways than we possibly could imagine and will be with us in even greater measure in the city that is coming. Amen. Every week at City Church, we participate in the Lord's Supper together, which, by the way, is a means of remembering and enjoying afresh the presence of God with us. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was to be betrayed, shared a meal with his disciples, and during the meal he took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this whenever you eat of it in remembrance of me. And then in a similar manner, after the meal, Jesus took the cup, and as he poured it, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink of it in remembrance of me. And Paul says, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again, because he rose again, he ascended, he is returning. By the way, one of the reasons we proclaim his death and proclaim his resurrection is a means of keeping ourselves from idols. Stay the course. Keep going. Christ has been raised. Christ will return. If you're a follower of Jesus, we encourage you to come, to approach this table, to submit to it in faith, and be nourished by the Lord as he works in you through the Holy Spirit. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, we are so glad that you're here. Instead of taking a meal that you're uncertain if you would believe in at this time, we would encourage you to simply reflect on what we've been talking about, maybe even pray through it a little bit. Then after our, the communion meal, I'll pray in just a moment. After the communion meal, there'll be a, an elder or a deacon on either side of this table. And they will have uh, a bowl in their hands with some wafers. You can approach them, they'll hand you a wafer, and then you can pivot to the table and grab a cup. And after the communion meal, the elder or deacon will be back in the lobby, and we would love to pray for you. A few of you have taken advantage of that recently, and we encourage it immensely. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for providentially giving us a meal in which we can gather in very intentional worship. And Lord, may our enjoyment of this meal not only give us the right kind of space to honestly root out idolatry and confess it, but also may this meal increase our, our love for you, our, our awe of you, in such a way that it drives out our zeal for idolatry. Capture our hearts this morning so that things of this world that compete so often with you may seem to be less desirable and nothing in comparison to knowing you. We love you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
with us. Let's sing this chorus. Sing together. for joining us today and for the benediction the lord bless you and keep you the lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you the lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace and may the peace of god which passes all understanding guard your hearts and minds in christ jesus let's sing the doxology Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. 
Praise him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Go in peace. Stain. What remains is love.